The Imprint Companion Podcast is, of course, brought to you by Imprint Films. Imprint Films is a brand new Australian boutique Blu-ray label. Check them out for limited edition deluxe Blu-ray releases of long-requested and previously unreleased films. Check out the past and future releases online at imprintfilms.com.au. You can follow Imprint Films on Twitter at imprint underscore films, or one word, on Instagram at Imprint Films, no space, and finally on the Facebook page at Imprint Films AU. Welcome to another Imprint Companion, the only podcast on the Australian internet about DVD culture. I am your co-host, Blake Howard, and joining me as always is a lord of Australian movie podcasts. Drago found him. Ling lured him. <laughs> Chief Gordon Ramsay-esque head chef at the Netflix Film Buffet and the king (laughs) of Total Reboots and the master and teacher and guide of young and -and up-and-coming screenagers. It's Alexi Toliopoulos. Hello, my friend. How are you? I am well, but even better to be immersed in the world of DVD culture with none other than the Zodiac Chronicler himself, Mr. Blake Howard from One Heat Minute Productions. Oh, my God. So here... We examine, investigate, unbox, unback, and unveil upcoming releases from Australia's brand new boutique Blu-ray label, Imprint Films. And this is the first of three episodes on the May 2021 Imprint Films drop, and we're going to be talking Imprint's number 41, number 42, and the elusive number 43. Before Ferris Bueller, before Austin Powers, there was Michael Caine's Alfie, the Zucker Brothers-style satirical farce starring James Coburn, the president's analyst, and the portrait of an English governess on fire, the Chalk Garden. What's it all about, Blake? It's all about Alfie. Get your knee off the steering wheel. I can't, I'm stuck. Here, look out, I'll do it. Oh! Well, you all settled in? Right, we can begin. My name is... Alfie! We're talking about spine number 41, Alfie from 1966. Michael Caine stars as Alfie, a cockney Casanova. In this outstanding example of 1960s British filmmaking, Alfie is a good-looking charmer who finds that the swinging 60s are a great time to be around in. He's always able to sweet-talk women into bed, and he just doesn't care about the consequences the film charts alfie's complex and amoral amour while he offers his own perspective addressing the camera with his observations on life and love blake had you seen alfie before was this your first time i getting in the sack with (laughs) mr michael kane i had seen this but i'd seen it like a billion years what feels like a billion years ago and let me tell you it is such a great helping of cinema like paired with what is actually paired in this incredible Alfie box set, David yeah. Batty's My Generation. Like I watched them back to back and I was mm-hmm. like, this is exactly the smartest way to package it because- you know, Absolutely. Because it's it's like, here's everything that is influential, Swing in 60s, here's Swing in London, here's what it was trying to do. And kind of to get it framed that not only was Michael Caine wanting to portray like a slice of life in London in 66, mm-hmm. but also all of the like revolutionary aspects of the movie. It was just yeah. so cool to be like, you can't be familiar with everything. So having that as this appetite for so bad, but I don't know about you, Alexi, but when I watched this, mm-hmm. I forgot 
that it's like a real it is a real emotional roller coaster. Like you only remember yeah. the kind of flea bag-ish, mm-hmm. Ferris Bueller-ish, face to camera, self-effacing, cockney like lovability of this like completely subjective narrator character that is completely interacting with you the whole way. But like he is a total F up. He abandons his oh. child. It's like, you know, I, I started thinking about There Will Be Blood. Like, I've abandoned my child. Louder. I've abandoned my child. I've abandoned my child. I've abandoned my boy. Like, I yeah. just like. Started. I've abandoned my boy. <laughs> I've abandoned my boy. <laughs> I started doing that from my home office watching this movie. And it was just out of control. Like, I was like, this movie actually is is just it wants to be so deeply ambivalent about the culture because it yeah. it, it does it kind of hedges its best it's like this could all go to hell or this could all be wonderful we kind of don't know and we're just going to kind of play you know uh we're just going to sort of play right on the line with it so mm. i know you're a massive austin powers fan and i know this movie is i mean it is like a sh- it is the shrine in Mike Myers's house that mm-hmm. he built Austin Powers to how was it going back and checking out this thing on crisp 1080p gorgeous blu-ray with all of the trimmings yeah it had been a long time since i'd revisited maybe even since i was in high school yes when i was a uh, truly in the prime of my austin uh, <laughs> fan phase um, and i remember really liking it then Watching it now, like you, I was kind of surprised by like what a fucking loser yeah. Alfie is. Because I think I just remember like his persona of how he sees himself, like that comedic gap, which kind of makes that movie like the commentary that it is, where he thinks he's this absolute swinger baby, like he thinks that he's out there like being the absolute oh, just charmer. a couple, just a couple of birds, just a couple yeah. of birds. And, like, then watching it now, it's so, like, this guy's a loser the whole time. And I and I never realized how clear that perspective is on him, despite him also being, like, the host of this movie, your guide into the world of Alfie. But, like, even, like, him just calling women it, using the it as the pronoun when he discusses women, it, like, hits so hard and it's so deliberate and Kane is just magnificent at embodying like this selfish, misogynistic, and both like in both like a physical and emotional sense. And stylistically, I gotta say, I really do like this film. And uh, you know, it's kind of a breakthrough in that direct-to-camera in a modern way, fourth wall-busting trope that we see so often now. And you know, it starts with Shakespeare and stuff like everything. It starts in the world of theater, but. I think that this is like the one that really breaks how we see it in the modern context because it's all about how he addresses the camera, why he addresses the camera, and it is to like lie to himself and lie to the audience and kind of deceive them. Every time he talks to the camera, it's deceiving until it starts to crack and you start to see him revealing his emotions to the camera. It's, you're so right. This is a movie that's so deeply influential, like all great influential movies that so many of its imitators completely miss the point. Like mm-hmm. so many of its imitators want to do that thing where they just talk to the camera and everything's about confidence and nothing yeah. is about penetrating that facade that you portray to the world. Mm. And what was so refreshing is going back and going, no, he's a piece of shit. And I think that maybe he does actually know 
that he's a piece of yeah. shit, like deep down, and that he's made yeah. bad decisions, and that, and that he is tinting his world with these rose-colored glasses because he's playing host mm. to this audience, and and Absolutely. I think that and I think that that's the trick of memory, right? You think about these great hosts, and that's where you come back to Fleabag. It's the difference mm. between a Ferris Bueller and a Fleabag, or like a Deadpool. Yeah. And a flea bag. It's because the Deadpool Ferris Bueller of it all is always about the fun and the and yeah. the and the let's have a parade float and let's do something silly. Whereas the flea bag of it all is like I'm gonna I'm going to have a facade to the world of the film or the world of mm-hmm. the series, and I'm gonna tell this audience in the fourth wall my deepest deepest darkest secrets. And I think that it's kind of the closest that has come. Yeah truly to like what Alfie's aspirations were, which is so, so cool. Yeah. And I, you know, rewatching it now, like there's so much of like the style that I'm impressed by, like those closing credits, we've got like the snapshots of the cast and crew. Love it. Why didn't every film adopt that after 1966? Because it just works so well. My favorite creating a sense of everything. My favorite post-credit scene of all time is Predator. Because you've just yeah. watched almost every one of these characters die a horrible, bloody, and harrowing yeah. death. And at the end, they're all just like smiling and cheers like, hey, wasn't that a bit of fun, gang? And I'm like, this is what <laughs> all crazy, like insane death toll, like sci-fi, like a buddy picture should have. It's just everyone sticking their thumbs up like, hey, guess what? We're still alive. This is a blast. Thanks for watching. You know, it's just, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's so awesome, man. I'm so glad to share this with you because um, you're like my, absolutely my favorite Austin fan, but let's dive. Oh, suck shit. Cameron James. Suck shit, Cam. <laughs> um, let's start, let's dive in and get truly uh, Zucker brothers or, or what I'd call go and get zucked with uh, yeah. spine number 42. I found it to be an absolute scream. The President's Analyst. The President is overworked, overtired, overburdened. He needs to talk to someone outside the stresses of his supercharged life. It stars James Coburn in his most smiliest performance you've ever seen, and it's actually a (laughs) mad smile. It is a political satire about a psychiatrist who gets enlisted to have top-secret sessions trying to give the President of the United States, the unseen President of the United States, the talking cure. As you would imagine, someone who is hearing the deepest, darkest secrets from the most powerful man in the world becomes a target for domestic and international espionage, murder, deaths, and then sometimes being the analyst for the people who are dealing out and dishing out that murder and death. (laughs) Alexi, talk to me about this absolute weird movie. This is a weird one, right? I don't think I was ever really familiar with it beyond seeing the poster and, you know, hearing the title. I never kind of knew what it was. I just assumed that it would be in the world of espionage or something. I thought it would be closer to a Manchurian candidate or like, you know... Exactly. uh, a Franklin Schaffner type film or, um, you know, that, that kind of thing in that realm. In that realm. And so to see that it is this kind of truly bonkers comedy <laughs> bonkers. in really, really like almost surreal, I would say this movie is. Yes. Um, I think Zucker Brothers is a really good one too. I think that you're kind of spot on because the movie that I watched literally just before I put uh, the president's analyst on was uh, Top Secrets, which like, <laughs> I, I think it was maybe the Fluke. wrong movie to put on because they are right in the same realm. And Top Secret is a joke a minute. This one is like, 
it is overtly humorous. It is overtly comedic. And the director and writer, uh, Theodore J. Flicker, was from the same improv world and improv group as uh, the tremendous Mike Nichols and Elaine May. And uh, then he kind of left to do his own thing here with this, just like they did uh, moving into film as well. And um, this is super weird because it is um, like kind of got this like jazzy score i think it is like uh lalo Schifrin did the yeah. score as well who, who's Ro- like robert e- composer robert evans famous robert evans of, of mm-hmm. paramount pictures fame greenlit this film this film is the first robert er- evans approved paramount wow. picture insane yeah it's truly insane like i feel like i this will be the one of the batch that i will need to re-explore and re-examine because it feels so wildly random in like this comedic satire and i kind of just found it a little hard to zone in on and vibe with but it's so worthy of another deep watch just because it is one of the great curiosities i've ever come across (laughs) it's i'm so glad to hear you say that i'm so also glad that i didn't do what you did because with top secret of course Mm -hmm. A, a stone cold classic literally as you said so many laughs it's not even it's it's more than a laugh a minute and mm-hmm. when i was watching this i was expecting exactly mentoring candidate sitting down in my office and i'm watching and it's intense and there's an opening sequence with a murder and it's like this thing that happens and it's very well orchestrated and shot over the top of like a, you know from a high angle shot in a new york city skyline and it's this scary sort of moment And then it just takes like a rapid left turn into nonsense. And I was so unprepared that I was finding myself like cackling at things I shouldn't have been laughing at. And I think that is precisely what Theodore Flick is trying to do. And I was just all in on this movie. So I would Mm. recommend to folks don't necessarily follow it with like a laugh a minute comedy, but if you've got a bit of a sick sense of humor and maybe all of the dark film noirs that I've been watching over the last little bit had me like ripe for this, but Mm. it just, it got me so hard and it made me feel like the people who've watched spies like us have seen the (laughs) president's analyst. You know what I'm saying? Like that, that kind of where it's, it's almost got the, the ephemera and all the beautiful trimmings of like a true espionage picture. And and then it's just completely batty. Like it's, it's fo- it's in that true Mel Brooks of like to take the Mickey out of a genre, you have to recreate it with such profound specificity that everything just like hits and hits and hits. And so it, it's not played for laughs. Like some of those great yeah. Mel Brooks things it's played with like a completely deadpan straight face, but there Very is a, odd. there is a moment where James Coburn, is almost dressed like Austin Powers running through a field with a giant smile and a hippie woman and a whole bunch of like different nationalities of, (laughs) of assassins coming after them. And it's just like, they're taking each other out like dominoes and it's almost like a crazy bizarre film clip. It's one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen. And I was just so thrilled to discover that it existed. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, it's kind of the same thing that I had when I watched Danger Diabolic for um, another episode of this podcast, which was like finding a lost strain of DNA to Austin Powers that I didn't know existed. This is in the same kind of way, like a forebear to a lot of... Uh, kind of like satirical, weirdo, thrillery type 
films like overtly comedic or overtly stylistic like even something like smoke on aces is kind of like where i see like the lineage going from with this movie it really did feel like unlocking a bit of a secret like lost to time yeah it's and it's what's even more deeply strange is that that robert evans crop of films if you trace the robert evans either greenlit or actually produced films from mm. those Paramount days, almost every one of them, even the failures, have had this cult around yeah. them. And it feels like this is the first one where there's definitely a lot of people, including, uh, I mean, a stack of the sort of uh, the the imprint films regulars here. Um, uh, and there's an, like, there's an audio commentary by Tim Lucas and there's an appreciation by Kim Newman, um, the British um, mm-hmm. author and film critic. Everyone's yeah, kind of like... We love Kim Newman. Love Kim. I love how involved he is with imprint. Love it. And he's just like, I can't tell you why this movie isn't a cult hit because it's got all the ingredients. It's got all that secret Absolutely. sauce. Totally. Totally. I think that if this is something that interests you, this is a total curio to pick up. Yes. I would also say that's kind of the interesting thing, just looking ahead of what the other movies we're going to be talking about in this batch and kind of thinking about, like, I'm constantly thinking through these conversations, like what Imprint is doing with the label and what they're trying to say with the movies that they curate. And I really think it is like unearthing these classics that are secretly super influential. Yes. Because there are a lot in this batch especially this one that we're going to be talking about on the next episode in the next little grouping that secretly I was like, I never knew this movie existed, but secretly it has had an impact on the biggest genre of films that we're currently living in that I <laughs> yeah. could not freaking believe. <laughs> I couldn't believe it either. I couldn't believe it. Either. Well, let's, let's dive into the final spine so that we can uh, let people go and catch up with the next episode. Alexi, what's the next flick in this first half of the first batch? Well, Spine 43 is from 1964 and it's a bit of an English classic. Once again, it is The Chalk Garden. You are a failure in life, so please don't try to run mine. No, look here. I can be ten times as hard as you with words or anything else. Starring Deborah Kerr and Hayley Mills, which is based on a stage play by Enid Bagnold. When disobedient teenager Laurel, Haley Mills, manages to make yet another governess leave, her grandmother and guardian, Mrs. St. Morgan, Edith Evans, decides enough is enough. When Miss Madrigal, Deborah Kerr, shows up at their doorstep announcing herself as Laurel's new governess, the girl quickly comes to realize that she may have finally met her match. Blake, what was your immediate reaction to... The Curious Case of the Chalk Garden. I thought that this movie was the portrait of an English governess on fire. It is just, it mm-hmm. is, it's got the same weird energy as uh, Skiama's yeah. recent film. It's on, it's it's set at the White Cliffs of Dover in England. Mm-hmm. It's in this picturesque location. Everyone is slightly weird there's money there but they're kind of disconnected from uh disconnected from their class disconnected from their station it's a strange it it was a bit of an odyssey but what i love i love i love the trope that is now no longer exists of the governess Mm. coming into town who blows into town with a secret 
So if who's you get- also always played by Deborah Kerr <laughs> in almost every movie. Pretty much. If you are blowing into town and you're a governess with a secret, I'm pretty much in because I'm like, what what kind of movie are we going for? Is this going to be a horror movie? Is it going to be like realistic? And mm-hmm. so what it, what it actually becomes though is a kind of a story of looking at all of your past mistakes in your life and 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 especially has a really strong undercurrent of like um, both sex commentary and class commentary that I wasn't expecting yes. from a bit of a sort of dopey drama mystery um, governess blows into town movie. And I just found it like a, a really interesting if kind of like outmoded version of storytelling, mm. it was very interesting. I was compelled. I could, it's There's a real thing that director uh, Ronald Neem here gets and it's, it's had pretty great, it's had pretty great reviews for its entire existence. I just mm. kind of really liked the feeling that always around the corner, there was something coming in this movie. And it, it does, yes. it does kind of play out in, I guess, pretty, a uh, pretty standard fashion as you would as you would expect from a movie that's made in 1964 set at the white cliffs of Dover with like high class people and governesses and whatnot. But I was really, I I deeply bought into every part of this movie Mm. and I watched it kind of rapturously and I was like, huh, that is really, I was like, huh, that's really funny. And even Edith Evans was nominated for an Oscar um, uh, for this one as well. And it was, I mean, who cares now? Was nominated for a Golden Globe in 1965. <gasps> um, but the but Globes, <laughs> the, the Globes that now lo- no longer exist. But uh, yeah. the the but it was it, it got a stack of BAFTA nominations. It was an award yeah. nominee. But that that's what I, I that was my strongest impression of Alexi was just that it was a it was very uh, I was I was interested and I was curious mm. the entire time I was watching this film. Yeah, I think for me, like, when you go back and revisit these, like, classic English kind of theatrical adaptations or literary adaptations that do have that kind of, like, period vibe to them, um, there is that kind of preconceived notion that they will be quite stodgy. Yes. And, um, you know... I go in, you know, when I revisit them, I'm often surprised by like how fresh they are, how vivacious they are, how compelling of a performance there is, or how there's something quite suspenseful to them. But this was one that re watching it, I did feel was completely stodgy. This was, <laughs> I think as well, like, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time um, is another movie where Deborah Kerr is a governess uh, working with some troubled children, which is the, in a sense, the adaptation of The Turning of the Screw yes. uh, from 1960 that I just absolutely adore. One of my favorite movies of all time. So I think I had some kind of like hope that it would be something as revolutionary as that. But I think what really kind of stopped the me innocence, from going is... The innocence, the chalk garden is not. <laughs> yes, it really is not. And I think it's just like that Hayley Mills, who I've enjoyed in some movies, especially from her child acting career. I love the original Parent Trap. As a mm-hmm. child of divorce, that movie means the absolute world to me. <laughs> and um, I really feel like she did not she does not quite fit totally in with this movie and i think that was the hard thing that i found like the challenge to overcome to like get into the chalk garden was that while deborah kerr and all the rest of the cast including Haley mills father john mills was everyone else hits that like brief of like what they're doing Hayley Mills just does not have the subtlety to bring this movie to life for me and to bring it into the modern age. 
Yeah, she's she's as subtle as a sledgehammer in this movie. Yeah. And we're talking about the freaking Peter Gabriel song, okay? I wanna be One of the most exciting <laughs> things that there is. Uh, yeah, so look, um, Chalk Garden, if we're talking about batch worthiness, we're talking about our overall, it's, it is probably the weakest in the batch. There are some real crackers. Um, again, though, if, if these kind of like uh, governess blows in, family drama mm. kind of things are your bag, I don't think you're going to miss out. Um, I, 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 sorry, I don't, I don't think you're um, going to be really disappointed if you did pick it up. Um, but, yeah. but it's definitely kind of like lesser on this batch. And that's just to say that the rest of the batch is so incredibly strong, especially mm. some of the films we're going to be talking about just coming up. Um, but, you know, and, and again, we've gone from a weird Robert Evans satire and an insanely influential Alfie and my generation double pack um, into yeah. uh, something slightly more conventional, which just doesn't seem to yeah. pack the same punch. But it's a good one. Maybe your mum will like it. If you buy the whole batch, you can pass it off to her if it's not your thing. But I do think it falls into that same thing that I was talking about is like that it definitely is influential. You can see the tendrils yeah. of the chalk garden being passed on to generation after generation. Like even parts of this movie remind me of my favorite movie of the year thus far, which is uh, Pablo Lorraine's Emma, which is about a bit of a problem child from a different perspective as well. So, you know, that's, it's interesting. That's what I'm here to say is that the chalk garden <laughs> is interesting in some regard, even though it just was not my absolute cup of tea, as the British would say. <laughs> um, I would say so far of this batch that we've discussed at this point in this first episode, that Alfie box set with my generation is an absolute find. That yes. is a complete double bill pairing that I think will really satisfy any kind of Anglophile for sure. Yes. It captures like a big piece of history and then something about that big piece of history as well with the documentary My Generation attached to it. Yeah, so you've not only got My Generation in that Alfie box set, you've got Michael Caine's Breaking the Mold documentary, you've got mm -hmm. visual um, video appreciations, audio essays, um, you know, audio commentaries by Joe Bonning and Melanie Williams. Like, it is just like in a previous episode, we did the Major Dundee special double pack box mm -hmm. set. That is exactly what you're going to get with Alfie. Now, just before we jump, in, jump out of this episode and into the next batch for you guys to record, Alexi, are we talking slip or no slip for this gorgeous Alfie box set? Oh my gosh, it's slip. Like this yeah. to me, like even if Alfie did not live up to like the expectations I had placed on it from seeing it as a teenager, um, it wasn't like a revelatory rewatch to the extent of, you know, what I expected it to be. It is an absolute must for me. Yeah. I really think that it is worth that full slip so you get both. You get that hard box set. Uh, it's going to look great on freaking anyone's collection. But I really think that is like... This actually is the bee's knees of a release. Like <laughs> This is the kind of thing that I want to push people towards to support because I think it is fantastic when you get something paired so well like this. Yeah. That feels like a no-brainer. Blake, what about yourself? 
I, I think you've sold Alfie. I want to, I want to, and, and I couldn't agree more. A film that takes as much care, um, uh, firstly, in the look, the package, and then for such a stone-cold classic to see the influence of actors and style and all of their influences in the period, in all of that, perfect. But the absolute surprise packet for me, The President's Analyst, for a couple of bucks. Mm-hmm. Like, if you... The Alfie is a must-own, but if you have a few extra shekels this month, it is absolutely essential for you to throw it at the President's Analyst in this first batch for me. It is so, so silly, so farcical, such absolute nonsense. And as a fan of, like, the tough guy that James Coburn is, I was so thrilled to see him doing his Leslie Nielsen. Um, There are some great appreciations on there. It's definitely slip-worthy for me because it's got the great original poster on there. They've kind of got, like... an adjusted and color altered um, secondary poster there that feels a little bit more contemporary, but contemporary posters by and large stink, Alexi controversial <laughs> opinion, yeah. but they stink. Yeah. I love the originals. Um, and uh-huh. I, and, and I'm, I'm a big fan of this one. So if you, um, if you were to miss out on one in, in, in of the ones that were discussed today, um, I would say it's the chalk garden, but yeah, the president's analyst is a find for me, a find. Absolutely. It's pretty interesting. Really. It's interesting. Well, my friend, Thank you so much for joining me for the episode one of three of this month's Imprint Films Batch. Where can people find you if they can't get enough of us talking about DVD culture in this country? Well, I would say if you love DVD culture, perhaps streaming culture would interest you. You can check out the Big Film Buffet where Jen Fricker and I give you previews of the exciting titles hitting up Netflix for your weekend. That's a big film buffet. You can get it wherever you get your podcast. And also Total Reboot, where Cameron and I Ooh. discuss interesting topics in films through the festival model of picking a mini series to discuss something of an interesting topic. We just did Screen Ages, where we talked about teen films for a couple of months. And we're just about to lead into what our next. Very exciting miniseries is. Oh my goodness. I cannot wait. You can find me, Blake Howard, in either the One Heat Minute Productions feed, where you can also find these episodes jumping into A Serious Disagreement, which is another show that Alexi and I do together, talking about all things physical media. But really, if you're in One Heat Minute Productions right now, I am up to my neck in Zodiac Chronicle, yes. which is a 24-part miniseries chronicling David Finch's 2007 masterpiece. If you are listening to this, you may have already seen, we have done a very special Ioni Sky episode mm-hmm. based on her scene, which also stars John Carroll Lynch and mm-hmm. Liz Hanna, writer of The Post and one of the co-writers of Mindhunter, including another stack of incredible guests. Previously, Ioni Sky was on my favorite podcast about reboots, remakes, and now currently doing festival style uh, uh, series, Total Reboot, which is how mm-hmm. I knew she was in this country. So thank you, <laughs> yeah. Alexi and Cam. Um, and so, yeah, I'm completely up to my neck in that and looking forward uh, very soon um, to hopefully announcing what is up next in the wake of Zodiac. Yes. So yes, some yes, exciting yes, yes. times for both pods. My friend, it is an absolute treat to talk to you. As always, it is my honor and my pleasure. And it's great to share DVD culture with a dearest mate, Blake Howard. <laughs> <laughs>